Good morning. Glad you're here today. We've got a house full. Uh, Maria Kofer, I think you win the prize for bringing the most friends to church. You know, like in VBS, you know, you give out a prize or who brings the most guests. Uh, we got a, a couple of rows here of college students. Glad you are with us today. Uh, others who may be visiting, let me just say a quick word of catch-up because we started a new series uh, last week. It's going to be four parts. So if you weren't with us last week, uh, you may want to go back online and, and listen to last week's lesson as we kind of introduce this concept. We'll talk a little bit about it this morning as we get in, but there's so much to cover. Um, I, I don't want to do a, a lot of review. What we talked about, though, is that sometimes we look at sin, we talk about sin, but that's the symptom and not the real problem. That when you pull back the layers, you realize that sin is the fruit. Um, it's the symptom. And that idolatry is the tree. It's the trunk. It needs to be what's dealt with. We asked ourselves some pretty difficult questions. Trying to identify some of the gods that are at war within us. Uh, and we all can struggle with these from time to time. Could it be that if you struggle with envy, that it's not just that you are an envious person, but that maybe you've let stuff become an idol for you? Or maybe if you're anxious or worried a lot, it's not just that you're anxious or worried. Could it be that comfort and security has become something that you worship? Or if you keep losing the lust, maybe you've made sex a god in your life. Or if you struggle with gossip, maybe you've made what people think of you a god in your life. Maybe if you're too legalistic or self-righteous, maybe it's because religious rules have become what governs your life instead of God Himself. Or maybe if you're discontent, maybe it's because you've made money your god. Or if you're proud, maybe because you've made image your god. Or if you lack self-control... Maybe it's because you've made pleasure a God in your life. Behind every sin you and I struggle with, when we dig down deeper, could very well be idolatry. Something else that's revealing. And idolatry, what I want us to understand, is not just a graven image. We have that in our mind. Think, well, that's just an Old Testament concept, or maybe other countries. But even in the Old Testament, they talked about idolatry as being a heart problem, not just a graven image. Like in Ezekiel 14.3, God said to Ezekiel about some of the elders in Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And Paul told the Colossians that greed is idolatry. And if you contrast that to what he said just before then, that Christ who is your life, He's supposed to be the very God in our hearts, not idolatry or greed or anything else. Well, what is an idol? I put that on the top of your study guide. What is an idol? And I want to give you a definition by Timothy Keller. He has written a book, uh, Counterfeit Gods. And if you want to go deeper, I encourage you to, to get that book. There's another, good, another book, Gods at War. I'm using that title. Uh, a great study to kind of help you to explore this even more. But here's what Timothy Keller, how he explains it. Idolatry is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Now, for most of my Christian life, I have not thought about sin and idolatry in that way. For me, the focus on sin is why I just think about it and then that with mental determination, you can lick it. You can get beyond it. You can, can get rid of it. You just got to try harder. 
But when I read and study through this, what I realize is you've got to get past the surface and actually stop concentrating on the sin you're not trying to do and go deeper and see what might be an idol. Because until that God is dethroned, until we deal with that deeper driving force, we're going to still have that fruit, that, that sin fruit, instead of chopping down the tree. So last week we tried to identify some of these gods. What are some of the gods that war within us? Today's lesson is going to be about the gods of pleasure. And, and there's so many we could talk about with that, but I want to kind of limit it to just a few for our discussion. But I think we'd all agree that this may be one of the, some of the hardest gods to get rid of because we enjoy them. Because they bring us pleasure. That's why we like it, and that's why it feels good. And so we want to keep doing it. If you have an appetite, feed it. If you have an itch, scratch it. If it feels good, we just want to keep doing that. And so these pleasure gods, these gods of pleasure are everywhere, and some of them are even difficult to defeat. In part, I think, because some of them, and we talked about this a little bit last week, they're not evil or wrong in and of themselves. In fact, they may be good. They may be a gift from God, but we replace them. We put them in the place of God. And so we get our priorities mixed up. We've turned them into gods. We took a good gift that God gave us and turned it into a primary competition. Now, parents, if you've got a young person who is into gaming, you can maybe think about this. And your child wants the next gaming system, whatever that one is. And they're all, there's always a new one. Imagine spending the big bucks giving your child that gaming system. And your young son, let's just say, just, you know, you know how he'd react. Mom, Dad, you're the greatest. Love you. Give you big hugs. And then they're gone. They go into the, the room where it's set up and they are just, we would say, consumed, obsessed. Time, days, they don't eat, they don't do anything. You know, they come to the dinner table maybe, but they're not really there. Practically speaking, the gift has replaced the giver. And we maybe can see it in an example like that, but all of us have times where pleasure just consumes us and takes over. God's given us so many good things. And we say, God, you're the greatest. God's blessed me. And then we turn the... What is in for God? Is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for the banquet of heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemy, but his gifts. The most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God Himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable. They're not evil in themselves. They're not vices. These are gifts from God. They're your basic meat and potatoes, coffee and gardening, reading and decorating, traveling, investing, TV watching, internet surfing, shopping, exercising, collecting, and talking. All of them can be deadly substitutes for God. Do you see why this is important to talk about? I want to say just a quick word of appreciation for this church. I appreciate your comments from last week's lesson. Got several comments from the home Bible study groups because I feel like in this topic, we as a church have jumped into the deep end of the pool. 
Because you don't talk about this a lot. And I appreciate this church for, for being students of the Bible. And, and you're not afraid to ask and to think and to study. What does this mean? What does the Bible say about this? Open your Bibles to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. And as you turn there, let me give you a little Old Testament history. Last week, we were in Joshua 24. So hundreds of years have passed since Joshua, at 110, 110 years of age, had given that charge to the people there at Shechem. Remember, he threw down the challenge, and he kind of made the obvious point. You're going to worship something. You're going to worship the gods of your fathers, the gods of the Egyptians, or the one true God. And you remember that story because all the people in unison, we're going to worship the one true God. We're going to worship Yahweh, God. So that's Joshua 24. Now we're in 1 Kings 18. Hundreds and hundreds of years have passed in Israel's history. And a few important things have happened you need to know. At this point, in 1 Kings 18, the nation of Israel is divided into two. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was first ruled by a king named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam had a big problem on his hands because he didn't want people going down to the other kingdom. He wanted his people to stay in his country. But there was a problem because the temple was in Jerusalem in the southern part. And so the people would want to go back to the temple to worship, but he didn't want that. He said, you know, traffic's bad. It's just kind of a long trip. You don't want to go there. So he decides to set up a place for them to worship in the northern kingdom. He gathers the people together there and convinces them. He creates two golden calves. Sound familiar? Yeah, we remember that before. Because a golden calf standing or, or a bull would represent to the people of the land symbols of strength and, and f fertility. And what he says there, these are your gods. But literally in the Hebrew it says this is Elohim. The Hebrew name for God. So he has these, these graven images and he says, these are your gods. This is Elohim. So here we are hundreds of years after Joshua and these false gods are back at it again with a vengeance. In fact, when you read through the history of Israel, you realize they kind of come and go and come and go. They can't, ever, can't quite shake them, you know. They never get beyond it. Eventually, 1 Kings 16, verses 29 through 30, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And those before him did some evil as well. So that's just helping us understand how evil he is. Ahab married Jezebel. You remember that? Princess of Sidonians. She was foreign as well. And she brought with her these foreign gods, this whole concept. She gets Ahab to worshiping Baal. And by the way, just go ahead and just write this down. It's Baal. We call it Baal in America in the southeast. But it's Baal is the true name. And we're going to talk about that more because that's a big deal there. Because God is a jealous God. We studied that last week in Joshua. God said that of Himself. He's a jealous God. Eventually, God's had enough. He's going to put a stop to it. Look at 1 Kings 17, 1. Elijah says to the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So Elijah tells the king, this, this evil king, that a drought is coming. And what this verse doesn't tell us is that this false god, Baal, is the God of rain. He's the God of weather. 
So God looks at Israel as a nation and says, well, if you're going to leave me, if you're going to serve this foreign God, this God of the rain, I'm going to take away the rain. If that's where you want to go, have at it, but you're not getting rain from me. And so he puts a stop. He brings the droughts. He withdraws the blessing in that area. Does that sound familiar? So don't be surprised because, you know, if you've studied your Bibles, sometimes if you just lived life, you know, God sees an area in our lives that becomes too important, most important, takes over, and He removes the blessing. So don't be surprised if you put your marriage ahead of God or your children ahead of God or your work ahead of God or your money ahead of God or your sex life ahead of God or your happiness ahead of God or your pleasures ahead of God if He says, that's the way you want to be, I'm going to remove the blessing. What Israel's experiencing is what theologians call the active wrath of God. When God looks at people and says, you're turning your back on me, well then, I'm not going to have it. And He actively engages in their life and brings about His own judgment on the people. Now, it doesn't always work that way. There are other times where we're living in a pattern of sins and maybe guilty of idolatry. And God allows people to experience, again, the other side of that, the passive wrath of God, where He may not actively intervene. He may just kind of let things go. If that's what you want, I'm going to let you have it. And you kind of bear the natural consequences of those unwise choices. Not just in the Old Testament. Read about in the New Testament. Romans 1 is all about idolatry there. Several times in Romans chapter 1, it says the people exchanged God for something else. Romans 1.23 from the English Standard Version says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. He's talking about idolatry here. What you read about this, every time they exchange God for this or exchange God for that, what you read here is in the same context here, the Lord turned them over. Or some versions say gave them up or, or gave them over. said, that's what you want? I'm just going to let you go. And, and He does that. So if you're living in the sinful pattern, if you're guilty of idolatry, then you'll experience God's active wrath or, or maybe His passive wrath. So the question then, and I put this on your study guide, what is the Baal in your life? Now that name really means master. It means owner. It means Lord. What's the Lord of your life? What's the master of your life? Who owns you? Who's your Baal? Is there an area in your life that's become too important? Where now maybe you're experiencing God withholding a blessing in your life. Think about that. If you've put something else ahead of God, why would God bless you in that? Even if it's a good thing. Why would God want to bless you if you've substituted something and said, this is first in my life? If you remember the story, remember the story of the young girl, she saw a, a cheap pearl necklace in the store. It was only $10, but she wanted it so much. She felt like she'd be such a big girl. So she saved up her money and her parents let her buy that set of imitation pearls. And she got them and she was so happy she wore them every day. 
And you know what happens when you wear cheap imitation every day? It started to turn. You know, a few of them broke off. Not a pretty picture, but she loved, loved, loved her pearls. Finally, her father comes in to tuck her into bed one night and says, Honey, do you love me? She said, Daddy, you know I love you. He said, Then would you give me your pearls? Oh, no, Daddy, I love my pearls, but you can have one of my favorite toys. He said, No, that's okay. And he tucked her in. The next night, he was tucking her in again and says, Darling, do you love me? Oh, Dad, you know I love you. Then will you give me the pearls? No, 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 not my pearls, but you can have my favorite doll. He tucked her in. The next morning she came down and she was very solemn. And she had the pearls in her hand. And she said, Daddy, you know I love you. And she gave him her pearls. And he went over and retrieved a velvet case and opened up and gave her a set of real pearls. But it was only when she claimed her allegiance to her father, her love for him, that he took that imitation away, that she gave it up, really, so that he could bless her with what was real, what was authentic. I can't help but think when I think of that story that God is seeing us hold on to what's cheap, what's bringing us pleasure, what's bringing us joy, and we can't even see that it's turning on us. And if we would just let it go, that He would bless us with what is real and authentic. And I wonder how often we miss out on God's blessings because we're hanging on to something else. So God sends Elijah to tell the king, listen, there's going to be a drought in the land. Chapter 18 opens like this. After a long time in the third year, there is no rain. That's a long time. God made its point. So Elijah sets up a showdown between God and these false gods of Baal and Asherah. 1 Kings 18, 19, Elijah goes to Ahab and he says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now the king had this ancient location in mind uh, that he could have gone to, but Mount Carmel has some history to it. The people there had worshipped God there. They had brought sacrifices. So God says, meet at Mount Carmel. Look at verse 21. Elijah went before the people. And I don't know if we can get a, a good picture of this, but this is a crowd probably of a thousand, maybe two thousand, maybe multiple thousands, because, I mean, think about it. There's 850 false prophets. And then others too wanting to know. I mean, they've heard about this, this challenge. It's been a drought. What's going to happen here? Verse 21, Elijah went before the people. He said, how long will you waver between two opinions? Doesn't it sound familiar with Joshua 24? How long are you going to go back and forth? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. And then it says, but the people said, what? Nothing. Now, in Joshua 24, when he said, Choose you this day whom you're going to serve, the people said in unison, We serve the Lord God. But here the people said nothing. Why? Why were they silent? Why did they say nothing? Were they silent because they didn't want 
to have to choose? Could that be what's going on here? So they thought it best just to say nothing? See, if they wanted to serve Baal, they would have said, we, we serve Baal. If they wanted to serve uh, Yahweh God, they would have said, we serve Yahweh God. But they didn't say that. They wanted both. And so they said nothing. I see this in myself. Maybe you see yourself in this as well. We don't like to be forced to choose. How many people are not part of a church at all? Oh, I believe in God. I just don't want to be a part of a church. Because they know that means they're going to be forced to choose. They don't want to have to choose. They want to have one single person or thing on their throne of their heart. See, a throne, you think about a throne, it's a one seat. But we want a love seat. Or maybe a sofa. Or maybe a sectional. We have all these things that we kind of like that bring us pleasure. And we want God too. Yet God joined me. But we have all these other gods with us. And we may all be guilty of this at times. God, I want you. I want you in my life. But you're going to have to share the space with fill in the blank. Fill in the Fill, you know, share my life with, with sports or fill my life with fixing up my car or fixing up my house or, or new clothes. Or worse, maybe we want Him to, to share our life with something that's totally against His will, like share, share my life with pornography. I want God, but I can't give this up either. Now remember, many of these things that compete for our heart are not evil. They're not wrong. But when good things become God things, then it's idolatry, and God won't bless that. And so if you're sharing your heart with these things that are competing, don't be surprised if He forces you to choose. He's a jealous God. So here in 1 Kings 18, the stage is set. The people are watching. They want to see who's going to win. Is Elijah and his God going to win? Are all these false prophets and their God's going to win? A lot of excitement. 1 Kings 18.25 Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Kind of giving them the home court advantage. Let you go first. Since there's so many of you, call the name of your God, but do not light the fire. Kind of saying the rules here. You know, whoever has lights this supernaturally, that's who's going to win the showdown here. Verse 26 They took the bull given to them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought. Or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. He's taunting them. A little trash talk here. Now, studying through some of this, maybe he's in deep thought or, 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 or busy. Busy is a kind translation. Do you know what that means in the Hebrew? Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe your God's relieving himself. That's literally what Elijah is saying here. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Do you get the picture there? I mean, they're dancing, they're parading around, they're cutting themselves, it's becoming bloody. And we, we read all of this and we think, oh, that's just sort, of, sort of primitive. How primitive is that? But how many of us have bled for our gods of pleasure? 
You sacrifice your family for a God of pleasure. You sacrifice career or your finances or your future, your reputation. You sacrifice your relationship with God for God's of pleasure. We bleed for them. I want to think for the next couple of moments how easy this can happen. And I want to mention just three. Three gods of pleasure that, that can be a focus, that can, can, can cause us to, to put them ahead of God. Entertainment is one. Food is another. And sex is another. And again, these are just three. We can have a, a long list. But for just a moment, I want to talk about entertainment. One man made a most insightful observation about our country. Our wonderful country, the land of plenty. For all the great things our country offers, he made this statement. A strange melancholy halts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. In his name, Alexis de Coville, he made that observation in the 1830s. The 1830s. We were already in this land of plenty. And you see what kind of happens with all of this. We go back further than that though. To Solomon himself. I mean, he chased after pleasure hard and fast. And he wrote about it in his journals that we've come to call Ecclesiastes. He mentions that. Ecclesiastes 2.1 Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. You remember his answer? Meaningless. It's all meaningless. He tried it all. and He came to the conclusion it's all meaningless. No wonder so many people can be bored today in the midst of so much. So many technological wonders. And we find ourselves bored. And we want to move on. The very word amusement, amusement comes from the realm of worship. The root word muse. Ring a bell? Well, the Greek gods, the ancient Greek gods that was attributed to, to thinking and reflecting and bringing about the best of thought and writing and art and science. As you take the word muse and you put the word A in front of it, A meaning lacking, it means lacking thinking. You're not reflecting, you're not thinking. Amusement then is, I don't want to think. You grab the remote and you turn it on so you don't think. It can easily just consume us. That's what amusement is at its core. We were made for God. Until He becomes our greatest pleasure, all these other pleasures in life will lead to emptiness. What about food? And this is a hard one, but I need to talk about it. Because like so many of the others, I mean, unlike so many of the others, you can't not eat. I mean, you can turn the TV off, right? I mean, if your issue is with, uh, with alcohol you can just, or smoking, you can quit that. But you can't not eat. So what happens when food then takes the place? And I want us to be cautious here and not jump to conclusions and say, well, when you see somebody who is overweight or, or, or maybe uh, very, very underweight, you think, well, that's them. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't think we need to judge in that way. Because it goes much, much deeper. How many of us have found the best thing after a long, hard day is a satisfying meal? How many of us get great comfort 
before the night is over to go to that refrigerator or that freezer and get three, four scoops of ice cream. Think about it. Why do we come up with the phrase comfort food? It's very revealing. And we can all be guilty of projecting a spiritual component on food. Ever heard someone say, this cake is heavenly. This pie is to die for. We take a bite and go, I've just died and gone to heaven. Death by chocolate. And the list goes on. For those who focus on food too much, churches don't help at all. Think about how many functions we have where there's a meal involved. Everybody brings up, what'd you get? We go back to the desserts and it's the size of the plate, the dinner plate. It's everywhere. And again, you can't stop eating. But when food becomes a substitute for God, it can become a God. It controls us. And if you have a weakness toward this, I want to challenge you to go deeper. Uh, because it's between you and God. And you must because Jesus reminds us, Matthew 6.25, is life is not life more than food. And in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Entertainment's one, food's another. Can we talk about sex for just a moment? Which, by the way, we're going to talk about this tonight in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. So I encourage you to come back and we'll talk more about this. Kyle Adelman, another book I'm reading about this, he made this observation. Every single time the word idolatry is used in the New Testament, every single time in the same sentence you'll find something about sexual pleasure. Go back and see if he's right on that. And the Old Testament helps us to see the power of this. Do you remember in the Old Testament the story in David's family? Amnon had this thing for his half-sister Tamar. you remember that? 2 Samuel 13, verse 2 is so revealing in the word choice. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. Now we'll talk about being smitten or head over heels. But look at the word in there, obsessed with his sister. He was sick. It was that bad. So what we have here is this beautiful gift of sexual pleasure that God Himself created to be enjoyed in marriage. And when we get it out of that context, what was a good gift becomes a horrific God. 2 Samuel 13, 15. The rest of the story, He hated her more than He loved her. Some of you know what a cruel God it can be. Because when this sexual pleasure takes over that much control in your life, it, it does control you. you know, obsessed is the right word. What you think about when you wake up and when you go to bed. What, it's not even what you want to do. It just consumes you. You've risked your career for it. You've risked your marriage for it. You've risked your relationships for it. And you go back and forth and you hate yourself. You read that phrase, he hated her more than he hated... You know, you, you, you've been there. And let's be real about this. This is hard to master in our sex-saturated culture. Because we use it to sell everything. 
Unless you live in a hole, it is going to be a problem that we need to keep our eyes open and not just on the world, but our own heart to make sure that we are not allowing this to take the place of God. It's become one of the most popular gods in our culture. I know I'm running out of time here. But I read one quote. It says, we spend an incredible amounts of money on pornography. Last year it grossed more than country music, classical music, rock music all combined. All the professional sports, all the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, all put together. That's how much money. You may never go to a bookstore. You may never act out. But how many... Christians will enter the pornographic temple of a computer. Happens. It happens. You think we haven't bled for our gods of pleasure? We've bled. And we still do. Look at verse 29. Back in our text. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. They try and try and nothing happens. So now it's Elijah's turn. We love this story. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which is in ruins. That's like a whole other side story. But he rebuilds the altar there that had been so neglected for years. Dig the trench. Put the wood. Put the bull on it. They bring water. They bring more water. They bring more water till the trench is full. Elijah's way of saying, my God can smack your God with his hands hide behind his back. And he does just that. There's no dancing, no parading, no cutting, just a prayer. Look at verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So his motivation is God's glory. And so these people's hearts would be turned back to him. Verse 38. And the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So the Lord wins the battle, and, and frankly, it wasn't hard. This wasn't really a challenge for God. But the people see the power of God. They slaughter all the false prophets, all of them. They turn to God Himself. They put God back in first place. So here's the challenge for us as we close. How do we defeat these gods of pleasure? How do we defeat? To me, that's a million dollar question in this. How do we defeat these gods of pleasure? And I think we need to be real about it because there's no doubt for all of us that sometime this has been an issue. For some of us, it may be right now. Maybe all of us right now. How do we deal with this? I want to introduce you to an idea. Not really new to you, I don't think but something I think we need to give more time and attention to in our study of Scripture. I go all the way back to a sermon that was preached like 150 years ago. How's that for an old sermon? The man's name was Thomas Chalmers. The guy died in 1847, so I'm telling you, we go way back here. But the answer is found even in his message. The title of the sermon is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, the only way to get rid of a false god 
is to get a real God. To replace it with the real McCoy. To replace it with a God of greater affection. See, we try so much to, to defeat whatever is, is, is our besetting sin. Saying, I will not sin. I will not sin. I will not. And doing that just makes us concentrate on the very sin. Instead of replacing it with a new affection. So put this on your study guide. It's not enough just to resist. We must replace. A little experiment I read about, and I'm going to try it here. I want you to kind of empty your mind just for a moment. And whatever you do, don't think about snakes. Black ones, green ones, don't think about those big ones that can choke you and get the light. Don't think about those little ones that can go up your pant leg or hide in church pew cushions. How many of you are thinking about snakes right now? Raise your hand. Some of you are not. You're really tough and you're ruining it for me. Thank you for that. Okay, don't think about snakes. Think about your favorite vacation spot. What is it for you? Is it the beach? Is it the mountains? Is it the cabin? Is it your back porch? What is it? If you had a long weekend, what would you be doing? Think about that. So you're not thinking about snakes anymore, are you? The expulsion power of a new affection. Thomas Chalmers put it this way. It is seldom that any of our tastes are made to disappear by the mere process of natural extinction. If you've got a false God in your heart, it's not going to go away, especially if you just say, go away, go away, go away. I'm not going to think about you anymore because you're thinking about it. It's not strong enough just to mentally say that. He goes on, I think it nails it. But what cannot thus be destroyed may be dispossessed. One taste may be made to give way to another and to lose the power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. That's the answer, I believe. God must become our greatest pleasure. That's the answer. Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. You know, it hit me as I was studying this and I thought, you know, all the worship wars about new songs and old songs and do you, do you like the, this style or, or, or that style? And, and we get so polarized by that, or at least we can be. And it, and it hit me that worship has nothing to do with song styles. It has nothing to do with the sermon. Worship is when you and I ascribe worth to God. That is worship. And so maybe a whole other study of this is, is what is worship? Because if it's a... Some of you don't even like to sing. I was thinking about that with that song that says, my greatest joy is to sing. Do you remember that verse? Some of you who don't like to sing, you remember that verse. Because you're thinking, God's going to have to change me when we get to heaven because I'm not there now. What about you? See, those words are just to allow us to be able to say, God, You are first. You are my only. All honor is You. And it's not about any of this stuff. That's what the song is. That's what the lesson is. That's what worship is about. That's what communion is about. God, You are my only. You are my God. God must be our greatest pleasure. Our time is up. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. Maybe a time of worship. 
If we can pray for you, we want to do that. Maybe there's a sin that, that has a root. Idolatry may have nothing to do with your prayer need, and that's okay. Or if you're ready to name the name of Jesus, we would love to witness you just making that statement and having your sins washed away in baptism. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?